1: this is wheel bearings i'm dan roth
2: and i'm sam Abuel Samaden. and we're sorry we haven't been here for two weeks
1: i mean kinda sorry <laughs> no i i do miss it i i miss podcasting and i hope that everybody misses the the episodes but in the meantime a bunch we're of back. stuff ha- yeah we're we're back and and there's just some things that have piled up uh, yeah we're it, we've
2: got things to say
1: (laughs) we always have things to say that's true uh maybe they're of value this time we've been driving cars and stuff too and and sam you had two well so if i'm if i'm trusting the document here you had the the cooper s countryman e or is that
2: yeah, the, okay. the plug the plug-in hybrid uh, Mini and, Countryman,
1: and did you have the 530e as well?
2: I did, and that one, that okay. one just went back today.
1: So you've been you've been sampling BMW's electric wares. Now I drove both of those cars and really really liked them. So I'm curious to see what your take on them was.
2: Okay. Oh, you want me to say it now? Oh. Uh, he, I mean, you don't have to. You can leave <laughs> yeah. no.
1: people in suspense.
2: <laughs> yeah, so I, um, so I had the, the Countryman uh, Cooper, 2018 Mini Countryman Cooper, S-E. Yeah, Not I S-E, hate the name. S-E. I, yeah, I the mean, name is dumb. Their, their, their nomenclature is just so ridiculous.
1: Hey, I hear uh, Johan Denisians looking for a job. Maybe you can help him out.
2: <laughs> yeah, he can just convert everything to uh, <laughs> uh, alphanumerics.
1: Right, and it'd be the Cooper. I don't know. You can name it after the the voltage. It'd be like the Cooper 220Y.
2: Yeah, <laughs> or something like that. Um, anyway, yes, I, I this is actually the first time I've ever uh, driven a Countryman. Uh, I never never got a chance to drive the, the first generation Countryman. So this is the second generation model uh, that launched a couple of years ago. And, you know, the plug-in hybrid version. Um, and I actually, strangely enough, I actually liked it a lot better than I liked the Clubman. Um, oh, I hate the Clubman. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, this one, you know, it was roomier. Um, you know, it. I, I thought it drove better than the Clubman. Um,
1: Which is a little weird because they are the same, like, they're the same platform, I
2: believe. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure they're exactly the same.
1: Well, yeah, this is BMW. So, yeah, like, I mean, yeah, it's, they're, it's, they're different. But I
2: think, you know, the, this one's, you know, a little bit longer. It's certainly taller. Yeah. Um, but, you know, dynamically, it felt a lot better. It, you know, the Clubman oddly felt, you know, felt kind of dead and leaden and Stupid this one and
1: clumsy
2: yeah and this one felt yeah. more lively yeah um so it, it was it definitely felt more fun to drive um you know and you know of course this is the the plug-in hybrid version you know it's, it's interesting you know the first electric the first plug-in bmw vehicle i drove you know was almost 10 years ago the original mini e you know which that one was a battery electric version of the the, the basic you know mini hardtop, the three-door mini um you know, and it was it was the a pre production pilot for what eventually led into it was the first of two pilot stages for what led into the i three. Um, you know, and they they used uh, a battery pack and a and a motor system from uh, AC propulsion, the same company that uh, devised the the system that was in the original Tesla Roadster. You know, they got licensed for the Tesla Roadster. Um, yeah, you know, and. And that one, you know, was such a different experience from from this one because this is a plug-in hybrid. Um, you know, the that mini, that original Mini E was the first electric that I drove that had you know really strong regen, mm-hmm. um, and you know, so you could basically drive it one pedal. You know, you'd lift your foot off the off the accelerator pedal, and you know, you could modulate your d just by just with that one pedal. Um, the this one doesn't do that because you know the that original one uh, was front-wheel drive so you had the motor and the power electronics under the hood where the engine would normally go and the battery was in the back this one is um, it's what's known as a, a p4 architecture you know, so you know in in terms of hybrids, yeah, you know, there's it basically goes from P zero to P four. P zero is like a a mild hybrid belted starter generator system that's driven off the, the front of the engine, where the, the the electric machine is driven off the engine uh, or drives the engine. Uh, p one is similar to uh, like the original Honda Insight and the and the old. Um, uh, Civic uh, hybrid uh, you know, Honda's IMA system where the electric motor is coupled to uh, the end of the crankshaft. Um, and there's no clutch in there, you know, and then that feeds into the into the transmission. P2, you put a clutch between the crankshaft and the and the transmission, so you can actually completely decouple the engine. And um, P3 is like a power split, you know, like the the Toyota uh, hybrid system, you know, where the motors are integrated in the transmission. And then P4 is where the motor. The electric machine is completely separate from the rest of the drivetrain. So in this case, and uh, Volvo's plug-in hybrids are the same way, uh, you've got the electric motor at the rear axle and the, the internal combustion engine drives the front wheels. Yeah, and, that's.
1: Um, I've heard it described as the through-the-road hybrid. Yeah, through-the-road
2: well. hybrid is another yeah. generic term for, for what's a P4, and the upside of that is mechanically it's fairly simple, um, you, you know, because you don't have to integrate the electric machines into the transmission, you know, so you can basically use the same conventional drivetrain that you would use on a non-hybrid version. Um, and then you're just adding a motor at the other axle.
1: Yeah. It seems really, really elegant. Like I don't know why we didn't start there.
2: <laughs> well, the, the downside of it is, um, in in this case is because it's front wheel you know the the internal combustion drivetrain is driving the front wheels the electric machine is at the rear axle and that means that you're limited in how much regenerative braking you can do mm. because you know when you when you hit the brakes uh you uh, you know you get weight transfer off the rear axle you know on, up from the onto the front axle and away from the rear axle and so you don't get as much uh, weight on the rear wheels which means you're limited in how much braking you can do i mean that's the same reason why on any vehicle uh, your rear brakes are always smaller than the front brakes because they're always going to do less work. So that means you can't do as much regenerative braking. So you get you can get plenty of on-demand all-wheel drive capability, which is nice, but you're not going to get as much regen. So it's not going to help your, your efficiency as much as it could yeah. if it was also at the f- driving the front wheels.
1: So maybe um, it's not ideal for something like a, a Prius, but here in the application for Mini, it seems like a really... Smart choice, especially because the performance benefits you get a you've got all wheel drive, you can engage that that rear axle in situations, say, like powering out of a corner
2: mm-hmm. and yeah, you can use it for front to rear torque vectoring. Yeah, uh, you've got that on demand all wheel drive and you can also, you know, drive it on electricity alone, just driving the rear wheels.
1: Yeah, yeah. And like, honestly, I didn't notice any weird sensations despite having sort of it's it's got two different powertrains in it for you know all intents and purposes and it it seemed to be really pretty well thought out how did you feel like it didn't feel like a prototype to you i'm assuming
2: no no it it felt great i mean it was as you said it it felt it was well sorted out um you know everything felt refined you know there was no no funkiness and you know in the way anything engaged or disengaged things like that uh you get on some hybrids um you know and uh, you know, it was it was fun to drive. You had plenty of torque from the the rear uh, electric motor. Um, it had about got about twelve miles of electric driving on a charge. You know, and unlike you, I did plug it in every day. <laughs> uh, you know, whenever I, whenever I came home, I you know I, I had the cord hanging out under my garage door and just right, you know, reached it, around, plugged it in. This is the, in the difference
1: house. between you and me, Sam. The only difference you have a garage. <laughs> See, and I, I, I do not.
2: Okay. Uh, Well, I think there's a one or two other differences between us, but we won't go there. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, so, um, you know, I got, you know, I was was able to do a lot of around town driving just on electricity alone without, um, without engaging the, uh, the, 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 internal combustion engine which is the the three-cylinder uh, 1.5 liter turbo that um you find in a lot of uh a lot of the smaller bmws and and minis now um and you know altogether you know it's got it's got plenty of power i think it's about what 220 uh 221 combined horsepower uh and 284 foot pounds of torque which is is more than adequate um, yeah. you know, so this, this thing feels pretty sprightly, you know, it, it feels like what you would expect a Cooper S version of a mini to, to drive like, so yeah. I, had, I had no real complaints about that.
1: No, I, I liked it a lot. I thought it felt really, uh, really lively. Like you said, the one area that I thought it, it's, it sort of gave up its hybrid, uh, sort of intentions was like when you're, when you're doing like a, uh, a long on ramp or something, and you just put your foot down and you know, wait for it to gather some speed. It, it feels like it runs out of breath at a you know, I don't know, 65 70. You can start to feel like as, as you're doing like a long acceleration mm-hmm. with it. Um, it, you know, it's carrying, yeah, some but I mean,
2: that you know, as you as you approach highway speeds, you know, the um, you know, the electric motor is basically running up to its limits at that point, you know, and so you're going to start losing some boost and you're going to be relying just on the engine alone uh, at at that point,
1: which has, you know, it's the smaller engine and it has more to pull around. So like, that's such a like rare instance. Uh, Not too many people are going to do that. So it's fine. And even if you do it a lot, you're not, you ever, like every time you, you get on a ramp, it's still, it's not most of what you're doing with the car. So. Uh, I I really thought it was a, a really w- smartly engineered package and, and like well just well turned out and if you can get past all the mini sort of mininess, I, th- I thought <laughs> and it was yeah good.
2: that's that's what I was going to get to is, you know that that's kind of still my main complaint you know is just kind of the general um, you know the infotainment system you know the, the big round uh, thing in the middle of the dashboard with the the touchscreen in the middle of it um yeah it's it's not the most intuitive interface in the world to put it mildly yeah it's um, not
1: not real good it's like it's not the worst but it's it's just yeah
2: yeah uh, i've uh, i've seen i've seen better um <laughs> and i mean you know if if you like if you like minis you'll be fine with it
1: well yeah i mean i think that's what i come back to is like i i'm impressed that they managed to stuff that large screen in there if you have like the mini connected xl or hd or whatever the hell they call it yeah
2: it's it's a that's a six and a half inch display in there you know yeah. it's, it's a nice display it, it, it looks good you know it's just not a great ui yeah so we'll we'll leave it at that um, I mean, you know, we've we've complained about that in the past and we don't need to beat that dead horse. Um, not tonight anyway.
1: <laughs> well, we, I mean, but, we have another electric BMW but, to well, talk about.
2: The, too, the, 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 well, I was going to say the, the one the one other complaint I have, you know, is forty thousand dollars. It's kind of expensive.
1: I Well, yeah, yes and no, though. Like, I didn't think it was that expensive, given that it's essentially a, a Cooper S um, of a different stripe. Uh, And you're going to pay that for a Cooper S too, you know?
2: Yeah, I guess. Um, You know, I guess personally, you know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to spend that much money on a plug-in vehicle, I think I would just as soon go with, you know, just go, go all in on a battery electric, you know, and get a Chevy Bolt or, or even a Leaf, you know, for starting at 30 grand.
1: Yeah. So and I can I can understand that the difference is that neither the bolt of the leaf are a mini.
2: That's true. You know, and, and so and they and they, don't, they also neither one of them has the foibles of a mini in terms of its interface.
1: Right. They have their own. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. But it, it's, uh, I mean, this is a neat place that we're at, right, where we can debate. When yeah. We, we,
2: we, we, we actually have options. Yeah. Um, oh. And, and uh, yeah, I, I don't. It's a very I, good options.
1: I can't see any problem with picking a bolt or a leaf. Uh, the leaf is certainly going to be, well, maybe not. I don't know. I haven't compared dimensions, but my, in my imagination, the leaf has a little bit more room and a little bit more cargo space than the Countryman. but that could be wrong.
2: I think they're pretty close. Um, the, the leaf might, yeah, I, No, I think, I think they're actually pretty, pretty close to the same ballpark. Um, you know, one one of the one of the things that the the bolt or that the mini does give you is some options in how you use the powertrain. So you know you can switch it to electric drive mode. You know if you're just driving around the city. Um, if we're going to be doing some highway driving, what you can also do is um, put it in um, save battery mode. So you know essentially it'll run just on the engine. And whatever, you know, if you've got 50 percent charge in the battery and and you want to save that for the end of your trip, when you get back in, you know, into town, you know, for the last few miles, you can save that battery and just drive it on the engine. And then when you get down to lower speeds then you can switch back to either hybrid or or electric mode uh, and, you know, run it uh, emissions free at that point.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty smart. There's a few cars that do that now, and I really like that feature because. It does. It lets you select when you're going to use the battery instead of just sort of forcing you into to running it all out, which may not be the most effective use of that that power.
2: Yeah. So you know, then I, I traded in the mini for a BMW 530e uh, iPerformance all or xDrive again I, yeah. again with the extended um, nomenclature. Uh, <laughs> I really liked the 530e. Like, yeah, I, I did too. A lot. I
1: don't. I don't know why. Because I didn't like the regular. I think I had the 528. I think or, or, or the, I, the
2: five, th- uh, I
1: forget. I don't know. 530i.
2: Either.
1: Yeah, their names screw me yeah. up now too. But uh, I but I liked the 530e way more than the the gas powered
2: uh, 530. Yeah. So the the 530e. Um, it, has effectively, you know, largely the same powertrain that you find in the the other plug-in hybrids uh, from the BMW brand. You know, the, the mainstream plug-in hybrids. Uh, so, you know, there's a three series, the seven series, and the X5 that are all available as plug-in hybrids. Uh, and the only real difference among them, they all use the two-liter um, turbo four-cylinder. Uh, with 180 horsepower, um, an eight-speed automatic transmission and with an electric motor uh, in there. And then the only difference is uh, the 3 Series has a little bit smaller battery, um, just because of you know, packaging constraints. Uh, uh, but they... Um, they all have you know uh, the same power output, so you you get 111 horsepower electric motor that has 184 foot pounds of torque uh, added to 180 horsepower four cylinder turbo um, and with 255 foot pounds of torque, and it's a great powertrain. Yeah. Uh, I mean it, it's really smooth, really seamless. Um, you know unless unless you've got the display up that t- tells you where um, you know what the power flow is it's really almost impossible to tell when the engine comes on or off um, you know I mean you and in the cluster you know when you're in electric drive mode it'll it'll show e drive in the in the cluster but you know this thing has a 9.2 kilowatt hour battery pack. I was getting, you know, regularly 15, 16 miles on a charge with this thing. And over the course of just over a week, uh, averaged 46 miles per gallon with this thing. You know, I had several trips to, to Detroit and back. Um, and such to, an to enormous car. I, <laughs> I know. That. It's, it's amazing to, to, you know, to think of this big yeah. luxury sedan, you know, getting 46 miles per gallon. Well, even when I had the 740 E, um uh, i got i got forty with that one
1: okay that i i got confused. I had the seven forty e and okay. i was amazed by that car yeah um because it is it's huge and it gets ridiculous fuel economy and it's smooth and just it's, it's just all around amazing and it's pretty much basically like a larger
2: version of the five thirty e i think yeah I they're had. they're both based on the same architecture yeah now, so
1: I had a five thirty i which i didn't like right um Yeah. Okay. Now that we're all straight.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, so this is, you know, basically a a slightly smaller version of that. Um, And, you know, it, it drives really well. It's, it's, it's a really impressive powertrain. Um, You know, BMWs, you know, the, the lessons that they've learned over the last 10 years, you know, starting from that mini E, you know, and they've, they've incorporated that, you know, they went from that to the, the active E prototypes that they did in like 2010 2011 and then brought out the you know the i3 and started adding these plug-in hybrid powertrains to the the mainstream the the main bmw lineup and um i think we have four plug-in hybrid models available in the u.s now uh not counting not including the i8 so you've got the the five the seven the three series and the x5 uh And, you know, in Europe, there's also a couple of other ones as well. Um, And it's just it's it's just great to drive. You know, I mean, it's it doesn't have it it doesn't have the it doesn't feel like you have the traditional BMW sportiness. Um, You know, you still have the the issues with the steering feel, you know, of modern BMWs. It's not what what it once was. Um, But you know, in terms of, you know, the refinement of the propulsion, you know, if, if you're looking for something that's roomy has, um, I think, I think a really good combination of, of ride quality and, and handling capability, you know, it's, it's, it's a smooth ride, you know, never feels floaty, but it also doesn't feel harsh even on, you know, on the roads around here. Um, And, you know, I think it it just works really well, you know, and if all you got to do is plug it in at night and unplug it in the morning and and you're on your way and you you get, you know, great energy efficiency, Um, you know, for a lot of your around town driving, you can drive it without any gas. You know, when when you step on it, um, you know, the engine will come on, but you don't really notice it at all. And it just goes and, you know, it's quick and really not a whole lot to complain about.
1: Yeah, I think I some of that feel like the the disconnectedness and the just less than satisfying feel. I think is just an overall five series thing, not not just the the uh, hybrid version.
2: Oh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's 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 in, the, in that respect, it's very similar to you know the five thirty i yeah um yeah and it, you know it has similar performance to the five thirty i
1: yeah and uh, like all of the reasons why people buy them like the people who actually buy them not the people who say that we're gonna buy them
2: yeah
1: I, I think it's the right car um but it's it's a little bit underwhelming I think if you you remember like you know the e39 certainly and even the e60 that had a little bit more edge to it in, oh, in sure particular trims um and, and I I think though what was really impressive was how carefully uh considered everything felt like it always starts off on the electric motor, like away from the stop. It starts off in the electric motor and then it kicks on the gas engine because it has start stop. Um, not every hybrid does that, you know, like a, a lot of cars, you'll, you'll take your foot off the, the gas, it'll kick on and, and you've got that thrashiness and then it has to engage the transmissions. Like it's just, a lot of that stuff, I thought, was, was very thoughtfully done so that it, it just feels good, even if it doesn't engage you as a driver. It, it feels like a BMW should
2: in, in those ways. Or, or maybe maybe not necessarily what uh, traditional BMW, you know, I mean, the, the kind of BMW that made the brand's reputation doesn't necessarily feel like what that feel should feel like, but... If you think of it just more in terms of, you know, I'm spending $70,000 or $75,000 on a car, you know, and on, on a, you know, a luxury sedan. And what do I want a luxury sedan at that price point to feel like, you know, I want a level of refinement. And as you said, you know, well thought out, everything is feels really integrated. You know, if everything works well together, um, you know, and I think. I think that's something that, you know, modern BMWs, whatever you might think of them as sports sedans anymore compared to where they were, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. um, That part of it definitely works.
1: Yeah. Did it really cost that much? Uh,
2: The one I had was 75. Yeah. But it was i mean it was pretty much loaded up as well so yeah it
1: had the ceramic knobs on the interior and whatever
2: <laughs> yeah and, you know it had uh, you know some really nice leather on the seats and you know heated and cooled seats and all that all the all the fancy stuff and you know of course the the silly gesture control uh, you know thing which you know i i still think you know is Really, like just it. a, pr- a uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it works well enough, but it's it's really just a, a proof of concept, you know, for the days a few years from now when. Um, when you you, know, you don 't have to actually drive the car and you know this the dashboard has been pulled away from you so you so it 's not really practical to reach out and twist that knob because you know if your hand is in the right location to be doing a gesture control to turn the vol you know turn up the volume you know it 's also right next to the volume knob that you can just grab and twist and have more precise control
1: it's that 's true but i don 't know it's just it feels a lot cooler to just wave your <laughs> hand and like I don't know. It makes you feel like you've got the force or something
2: it, Yeah. I, or something.
1: I, I, I thought I was going to hate it. And then I tried it for a few things and I was like, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I,
2: like... I, I admit, I admit it is, it is kind of cool, Yeah, but yeah. you know, you know, I, 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 I like physical knobs that I can just twist.
1: I absolutely agree with you. Um, it's just, yeah. And, and like I said, I, I was prepared to dislike it. Uh, so I was surprised that I actually, you know, shrugged and was like, "Huh, that's kind of neat. It's it's a parlor trick, but it's it's a neat parlor trick."
2: Well, as I said, I think you know, parlor trick, yeah. You know, but I think I think what it is is a proof of concept for you know, kind of the the next generation of vehicles. You know, when as you start to get into vehicles that are you know more electric, more automated. And, you know, you can start to rethink the interior architecture of the vehicle. I mean, you know, today that the dashboard is where it is because you've got a bulkhead right in front of that, you know, and an engine on the other side of that. And, you know, when that goes away and, you know, you can start to move those physical pieces around and move that dashboard away from uh, from the front uh, occupants. You know, now you have this enhanced feeling of room inside the cabin. But of course, that means that you you can't grab physical controls anymore. So you need an alternative. And so I think, you know, the reason why BMW went ahead and implemented this is to get people used to the idea and, you know, to make sure it works and, you know, learn some lessons from it, you know, and it's, and it's not the only way to control. It's, it's a redundant, all the things that you can do with the gestures, you can also do with other controls. So even if it, even if there is an issue with it, you you still have other what means to do the same function, so you'll never lose anything just because of the gestures. But it's there if you want to play around with it and get used to it.
1: Yeah, they're pretty smart and clever rolling that out just to see how it well how well it's adopted. Um, I, I mean, and when you think about it, like you say, like when you don't have the need for the dashboard or the steering wheel or even that seating orientation, you know, not everybody. People, people may not be sitting facing forward. You know, they may sit, like, in a train car on the sides. Um, that's probably a
2: long way off. Maybe, but may, right, or maybe. or maybe not, as maybe. we'll discuss later.
1: Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where BMW takes it. But the, for now, surprisingly, uh, they're doing a really good job on hybrids.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, no, I, it's, I mean, they, they're... Their 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 hybrid their plug in hybrid vehicles work really well and um, I I think I think they're they're really well sorted out and I can't see can't wait to see what comes next.
1: I mean I don't know that I'd drop seventy five thousand dollars on one but yeah I mean if you're in the market for a BMW and fuel economy is one of the things that you care about and you're leasing it anyway, I'd...
2: which you know most BMW customers do so
1: yeah. Um, it's, it's hard not to, to say that that's an attractive option, even though it kind of sucks the life out of the driver's car thing <laughs> a little bit,
2: but you know, again, as I said, that's you know, not necessarily all that different from a, a non-hybrid version of the same car.
1: Right. Right. Um, so I also had a hybrid, uh, that we can, we can discuss. Um, I had the Camry, the 2018 Camry hybrid, uh, I had the XLE trim. I'm not. I'm. I'm not sure. I should admit this, but I. I really liked this car. Uh, it, it doesn't.
2: You're right. You shouldn't have admitted that. Yeah.
1: It. It, <laughs> it. It doesn't really have any bad habits. Um, you know, it's the new the new TNGA Camry is really good. Every car I've driven on that architecture from from Toyota has been. Uh solid it they all ride well like they finally have somebody who knows how to make them not mushy but also not harsh um so toyota has figured that out uh it you know it's not a not a sports sedan but it's it's not f- uh sort of floppy and unpleasant and soft and just vague and crappy like cameras had been um, the XLE well, trim you know, is nice.
2: Granted, they've, they've only been that way for 30 years.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a short time. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was impressed with that. Just like wait, this, and I will say that the, the hybrid Camry for at least the last two generations has been the best Camry to drive, which is the weirdest thing. Um, you would think that there's sporty SE or the XSE or whatever now is the best one and I, I don't know I haven't driven one of the XSEs or, or or whatever of this generation so I can't tell you yes or no but the hybrid still drives really well uh and the the, the XLE trim is nice so they've kind of like they've fixed the things that used to bug me about the Camry um the materials inside are much better than they were on the last couple of generations. So the the cabin is nice. And again, that's the XLE trim. So I don't, uh, you know, I don't know what the base model looks like. It, it may feel a little bit more like a rental. I'm sure it does,
2: uh, but yeah, I haven't sat in a base model. The, the one I drove a few weeks back, I believe was also an XSE if I recall, or maybe it was an SE.
1: Yeah. So it had like leather stitching on the, the dash, and you know, just the quality of the plastics is better. The design of the dashboard is is better than it had been. Um, they have these, you know, and again, it's a, it's a detail thing, like we were talking about with the BMW. Uh, so the knobs on the center stack, so for to control the the radio, the volume knob, the tuning knob, and and the climate knobs, they're mushroom shaped slightly, so they. It's subtle, but when you grab it, it's it's got a wider radius at the the top of the knob than it does sort of uh, down down lower on on the the shaft, I guess, or or just the other part of the knob. And it so it's it, it to grip it, you don't you don't slip. You it's it's a more positive kind of thing. Um, and uh-huh. it's there was it's funny because that same thing happened uh, when uh, one of the mixing console. Um, makers, uh, Digit Design, they introduced a few years ago their their D Control console, and it had mushroom shaped knobs. And everybody's like, well, "Those are a little weird," but to use them is is really it's like a, a a much more friendly uh, tactile experience. So I, I don't know. It's again, it's just it's a little thing. Like you would think that they wouldn't need to re-engineer something like that because it's like you know the joke about reengineering the wheel. <laughs> but it it works uh, and it's it's effective. So you know Toyota is is thoughtful when they redo their cars to a large degree. And and I think they, they were extra thoughtful on this generation of Camry and it, it pays off. It get, you know, it got 45 miles to the gallon has a big trunk. Um, you know, two and a half liter to 2.5 liter four cylinder, uh, which is pretty well isolated. So it doesn't flop around and it's not as, as rough as it used to be. Um, it's a, It's it's what the fourth generation hybrid Camry, so. Uh yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's it's pretty worked out by now. Yeah,
2: Yeah, they've they've (laughs) they've they've sorted they've got it well sorted out. Yeah. One one of the interesting things that I uh liked about the Camry is you know on a lot of modern cars you know on, on most modern cars now they've got the hood. You know, up a little bit higher, so there's some clearance under there, and that's you know part of meeting uh, pedestrian protection requirements, uh, especially in Europe and and in other uh, regions where it's not a, it's not mandated here, but they're they're implementing the same sort of uh, structure here. Um, and so what. You know, one of the things that happens as a result of that is, you know, the designers often will, you know, you'll have the line from the hood that will extend along the side and that'll form the bottom of the side glass. Yeah. And so you end up with this high belt line feel and, you know, you and a lot of modern cars, you you end up feeling like you're sitting down low in a tub. Yeah. get an infusion, for example. Right, and one of the nice touches that they that they did on this Camry is if you look at the the side glass, you know, the line of the side glass from the base of the A pillar, for the first few inches, it actually angles downwards, and then starts. To go back up again So you get that You know That little bit of Rising wedge Towards the back of the car But it dips down first So you You actually have A more airy feeling Inside the cabin Which you know I think feels really good Feels really nice
1: Yeah it clears that Just that little bit Of visibility In that right. the That lower Sort of front area That it's your periphery But the mirrors are there And stuff So it, it does make a difference in, in making you feel like You're you're not cooped up And I I Am I got the impression that the cowl itself in the Camry is a little lower at least than than some of the other cars in the class. It it didn't feel as claustrophobic, so I I did like that. It felt, you know, it's not like the old days of thin, thin pillars, but it it didn't feel as closed in as cars, you know, back maybe five years ago or or, or a little bit more felt when they hadn't started using as much high strength steel. You know, everything had fat pillars in your your way. This was a little better than that. So, Uh, you know, it's... It's hard to admit that a Camry was like one of those things. Like I have nothing bad to say about like it's.
2: yeah. I mean, you know, for, for years, the running joke about the Camry was that, you know, if you looked up the word beige in a dictionary, there'd be a picture of a Camry there.
1: Yeah, but it's it's not even boring. It's not dull. Yeah, it's well, just it's fine.
2: Right. <laughs> you know, like, well, that, that's that's what I'm getting at. Is you know this generation of Camry finally moves beyond that. I mean, you know they kind of started to do that with the design on the last one. Yeah. Um. You well, know, this made it, a little it looks more great. Interesting.
1: This this generation, at least in this trim, the, the SE with the funny fa- the the gills in the back and stuff. That's a little yeah. Much,
2: the but. yeah the yeah the the one I had was the XSE. You know, so you get these fake vents in the rear corners and. Yeah, it's maybe a little bit over designed in the front, but the you know the the basic shape of the car is really good. They they did a really nice job executing this.
1: Yeah. So now that nobody's listening anymore,
2: it's like, why are these guys talking about the Camry for so long? Well, but it's
1: you know Toyota is one of those companies like um, McDonald's, right? They you can take shots at them, and they they have such a large footprint in their market that. Uh, they're gonna make missteps from time to time, and it's it, it, when that happens. The the key is how they respond, and and they're very responsive to criticism. Um, maybe McDonald's more so than Toyota, but I think in the last few years, Toyota has really taken a lot of the criticism to heart and worked to address it to make the cars, uh, you know, both good for their the intended market and also just good for. You Know people who are re- reviewing and evaluating and just general, um, you know, car enthusiasts,
2: and it's paying off. And, and you know, this will probably end up being the last midsize sedan on the market. You think so? <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me.
1: I mean, they're midsize sedans are getting clobbered, as we saw with, with Ford last week. On, like, you know, yeah. what we're done,
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, they. You know, the, the car, you know, the small and mid sized cars are just, you know, they're fading away rapidly. Uh, you know, Fiat Chrysler was the first one to dump theirs a couple of years ago. I mean, they were they were on the leading edge of this. They saw what was coming and they said, oh, to hell with it. Let's just dump them now yeah. know, before we start losing too much money, too much more money on them.
1: Well, and, and, uh, yeah. I mean, honestly, like that's still a that was a really that was the move that made you go. Are they going to survive or what? And I still I'm kind of scratching my head. Um, but essentially they, they didn't, they didn't want to re-engineer the cars. Right. At that point, they didn't, they didn't want to put money into platforms for sedans or, or, well,
2: I mean, bo- both of those were, I mean, they were pretty new. Car- I mean, they were both less than two years old when they discontinued them. You know, they were complete. you know, they were brand new cars. Uh, you know, they, I mean, they were on a platform that was, a, you know, a few years older than that had been on the market in Europe for a few years. It was a, a Fiat platform. But it wasn't. It wasn't like it was. You know, it wasn't like the LX cars. You know, the big, the rear drive sedans. Which
1: is crazy that they just keep making those things.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, this. You know, the 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 two hundred. The Chrysler two hundred and the Dodge Dart were, were still relatively fresh.
1: Were those um, um? Were those compact US wide? Uh, yes. So they they were basically the compact. So compact US wide is that's Renegade, right? And the uh, um. The compass. compass.
2: Yeah. yeah. Huh. And, except that, you know, nobody was buying them. Yeah. Well, and I so mean, they, they, the, they were they, tight. They,
1: they were not, they were, they nice. were not entirely
2: like, competitive yeah. in their, in their segments. I mean, you know, they weren't terrible cars. I mean, they no. were actually quite good in, in a lot of respects, but you know, in terms of the interior room that they offered, they, they weren't as competitive as they, as they probably should have been. Um, but, You know, I mean, they also they saw the the trend starting already, you know, with cars in general, and they decided to get out while the getting was good and repurpose the the two plants, you know, to build more trucks and utilities. And now, you know, Ford is doing the same thing. And, and, you know, there's reports that GM is thinking along similar lines, uh, you know, ditching the the Spark and the Sonic and, and possibly even the Malibu uh, in the next uh, year or two. Um, you know, and we're, I think we're, you know, we're going to see more of these cars, unfortunately go away. Um, you know, they uh, you know, we'll see what, what Honda and, and Toyota and Nissan do. I mean, you know, Nissan, Nissan just had a, a really rough month, uh, and, uh, in, in what April? Yeah, April. They they reported sales yesterday. Nissan was down twenty eight percent overall, and but they had you know everything was down for them, even their utilities and trucks. But yeah, while you know while we were away last week, you know Ford made it official that um, you know the Fiesta was going away. Um, the focus, when the new focus arrives in North America, it'll only be as the focus active, which is a slightly taller writing pseudo sort of crossover thing version of the focus. And I think it looks um, cool.
1: It's delightful.
2: Yeah. And then the... Um, uh, the fusion uh, the taurus is going away which you know i think we all knew for a long time they just made it official and they, uh, there were a lot the of fusion people that the fusion were... will not be getting a redesign yeah well, uh,
1: and that's fine because it's had three refreshes um
2: yeah well the, the, the fusion the fusion will be you know they'll keep building it for probably another two or three years um and then uh, and then it'll eventually probably fade away as well
1: yeah um and t- 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 a i was uh, amused by how many People were surprised they still make the Taurus. It was like, "Oh yeah, it's still a
2: thing." You just yeah, nobody buys them. Um, Well, they have been selling about two thousand a month.
1: They're just I don't know who's buying. They're not a good car in that segment. Like they're they're fine. It's not like they're a bad car in terms of problematic, but they're just they're space inefficient. They're big and not not even fuel efficient. They're like they're big on the outside, not big enough on the inside. The, the trunk is not great to load. Like they're a platform that was sort of like putting this giant taffy pole and stretched out as much as it possibly could. And it, I don't know. It, it kind of doesn't work quite as well as it should. And and I think honestly, what happened was they sacrificed some of the utility uh, at the last redesign from when it was the 500 based Taurus that, that was a lot roomier. And then they went to the, the, this, you know, much more stylish Taurus, it lost headroom, it lost, you know, passenger space and just, it looks a little bit more stylish, but it it lost uh, quite a bit of its utility. Um, And I I don't know. It's, I think the only, the the reason why they sell 2000 of them is because they're cop cars or are they not broken?
2: No, that doesn't include the cop cars. The the cop cars, they only sell about uh, uh, about 800 a month.
1: 2000 i wonder if that's the rate of baby i think it's mostly retiring. fleet
2: and like <laughs> rental cars yeah. stuff like that yeah because um yeah i was uh, actually the the day they the day they made the announcement i was uh in colorado to drive the um the the f-150 diesel which we'll get to in a couple of minutes uh but i talked to mike levine who's the uh, um he's in charge of uh, product pr for ford and uh you know he he reiterated that you know and if you look at the sales numbers you know 80% of Ford's police vehicle sales now are the Explorer the you know the the uh, police interceptor utility and yeah. Yeah, you know, the the Taurus. You know, they'll keep the uh, end of production for the Taurus is next March, uh, March of 2019. Um, at which point, you know, they will presumably be retooling the Chicago assembly plant where they build the Explorer and the Taurus to build the new Explorer and the Aviator, and the Taurus goes away from from the U.S. market. There's there is actually a new Taurus that's in the, in China only, uh, which is basically a stretched version right, of the safe. the Fusion.
1: Oh, uh, oh! It's not a long wheelbase version of the Taurus.
2: No, no, it's 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 a it's a completely different car. It's it, it's it, a, it's Mondeo. There, there, was, there was there was at one point a plan to sell that vehicle here as well, um, but uh, they they decided to drop it from North America, and so it's a China only model. And it's it's a lo- it's it's basically a, a a larger version of the Fusion.
1: Ah, see, now that would be a bad, that would be a, a better idea here because the Fusion one of the issues is it's a little tight. Um, yeah, that's nobody's buying cars, and but Ford's going to be fine without the cars. Like that's the thing. It 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 sounds drastic, but it's it's not really, and it's not going to bite them at the next fuel crunch. Like you might think they're being stupid, like automakers have in the past, where they're they're okay. Everybody's buying trucks, and we love the profits, so let's just make all trucks. We don't need to make cars, but they they're they are making cars. You know. Uh, crossovers are made from cars, They're car platforms. They can easily sort of transform them from a higher riding hatchback to a, you know, more normal car. If that comes back into fashion, uh, they'll, they'll well, be and,
2: and the thing is they don't even need to do that because, you know, going forward, all their vehicles are going to be built on one of five flexible platforms. Um, you know, so they've got a front drive, unibody, a rear drive, unibody, Um, A body-on-frame truck for the the F-Series and the Ranger, Um, a a commercial van, you know, van platform, you know, for the transit, and then the, um, the EV, a dedicated EV platform. Everything's going to be on those five, and they're still selling the cars. You know, they're still selling Fiestas and Focuses and and Mondeos in other parts of the world. So, if the market does shift back, you know, if gas prices continue to increase, and you know, the market does shift back to smaller vehicles or to, to cars, they can always bring those back to the U.S. market.
1: Yeah, that's so. That's that's the thing. Uh, as long as it it's something that they can. You know, sell here in terms of like crash protection and emissions or whatever. But it's a lot. I think it's a less of a big deal to make those changes to an existing car than it is to start from from scratch. And Ford has been down both of those roads before. Uh, But you know, at the end of the day, they've got they're they're selling car parts. For truck profits with crossovers,
2: so oh yeah, absolutely. Like and you know the, the thing is, you know, for, well, first of all, you know, um, you know, one of the advantages they have now that's different from what the situation was ten years ago or fifteen years ago is that all the vehicles that they build now are being designed to meet uh, global. Uh, crash standards. So they're being designed to to meet European standards, North American standards, and Chinese standards. Uh, so, you know, in the, in the past, you know, 10 years ago, if they wanted to bring a Euro- European focus to North America, they had to completely re engineer the car to do that. When they, you know, in, from 2010 onwards, everything new that came to that launched in North America was designed. From the ground up to meet all of those different standards. So if they decide to bring back, you know, a next generation Mondeo or, you know, Focus or Fiesta back to the U.S. market, it, you know, basically all they've got to do is update the powertrains, recalibrate the powertrains for U.S. emissions. Yeah. uh, And that's less of an issue. And then, you know, there's a few other minor things, but the basic structure is going to be the same. They, they don't have to completely re-engineer the car, and then you know as far as the the small car stuff goes, you know the Echo Sport is already outselling the Fiesta and is based on the Fiesta platform, and you know Fiesta starting price is like fifteen thousand dollars, the Echo Sport starts at twenty grand and goes right. up from there. Right. So and I you know, they're getting a lot cost, more margin yeah. on those cars than they are on the Fiestas.
1: It, there's no way it costs five grand more to make that.
2: No, not so, at all.
1: Yeah. Good for them. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's it's not it's not a big deal. Um, it, it seems sort of drastic. But, I, you know, I, I wasn't really all that tuned in back in, say, like 1980, when everybody downsized, like, massively. And, you know, the 77 GM B-bodies went from, you know, the massive B-bodies of the 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 seventies, you know, like a seventy six Caprice, is this huge thing, and then seventy seven is the boxy square, you know, much smaller car that was like seven hundred pounds lighter. That had to be really drastic as well, and you know, it it worked out
2: eventually. Yeah, it, it took a while. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, that was that was also at the same time that they were implementing, you know, emission standards and, you know, electronic controls, engine controls as such were at, at best primitive. Yeah, you know, they, they were still dealing with carburetors and uh, you know a rat's nest of vacuum tubes under the uh, under yeah. the hood. And it wasn't, you know, for, you know, towards the end of the 80s when they, you know, really, you know, start when they shifted over to fuel injection and, you know, got more sophisticated uh electronic control systems that they you know they really started to get their act together.
1: Yeah, I mean I you know I think back about it now like GM in particular is in a much better place than they they were the last time big changes happened. I mean they just punched themselves in the face over and over again from like 1972 all the way up to like 1990. Like it started with the Vega and then There was, what, like, the V864 didn't work out. (laughs) There was the X car. You could say that. You know? I mean, the the X car started with such promise, and then it just, like, that fell flat.
2: And Um, the J car?
1: Well, I think the J car actually was... Was popular though,
2: right? It was a relative commercial success. Yeah, um it was not a great car. No, it wasn't. It was it, it wasn't it, a it great had, car. I mean, like a lot of the stuff, you know, it was a lot of interesting ideas poorly executed.
1: Yeah, it was way better than the like the Chevette, which was the
2: you know sort oh of yeah predecessor. Of, um, but, I mean, that was such a horribly bad car.
1: I mean, the Chevette you know, was. You know, it'd be
2: hard not to be.
1: This, they had, there was like this old thing they had in Brazil that they were like, we need a small car. Let's bring it here. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, and then they had the HT, the, the HT4100 V8. Uh,
2: just not yeah, good. Cast iron heads on an aluminum block. Uh-huh. Um, what could possibly go wrong?
1: Yeah. And and then like the GM10, which took forever.
2: Yeah, and, and was way too expensive. And, right. And, and came, you know, they, they launched... All four of those as two door coupes, just as just as everybody was saying, no, we don't want two door, you know, personal luxury coupes anymore. We want four door sedans and minivans,
1: and oh, the Oldsmobile Diesels. (laughs)
2: <laughs> oh, yes. The so, old diesel.
1: Like, And they survived.
2: Long before VW screwed up the diesel, GM did it really right.
1: Like, how amazing is that? Like, they must have had so much money and so much market share. They did. They had, like, what, 60% of the market back then?
2: Something, that, yeah, but in, in 1970, yeah, yeah, pretty close to that.
1: They could basically afford to just shoot themselves in the face over and over again and not go bankrupt. It came close, but not go bankrupt. <laughs> I, there's no way that could happen now. They would be gone. Um, things are just so much different. So everybody's getting out in front of it. Uh, GM is, as like you say, I think they may be the next ones to to cancel their cars. Um, at least some of them. Because honestly, who's who's buying Malibus and Impalas?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean the Impala is probably going to be the first one. The Impala, the Sonic, and the Spark will probably go first, and then uh, the Malibu will probably follow behind uh you know it's still selling about fifteen thousand a month but it's that's it's, not too bad. Yeah, but it's down a lot from its peak.
1: I mean they've there there are some interesting things. Like maybe the interesting stuff sticks around. You know, buick has the regals, especially the wagons.
2: Yeah. Um and but I mean though even those, you know, especially the the Turex, you know, they've they've transformed that into, you know, one of these pseudo crossovers, you know, like yeah. the focus active. Um and they're marketing it as a crossover rather than as a car or especially not as a station wagon.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, whatever they plan to do, I mean, they've convinced us that we all want crossovers, so now that's all they're going to give us because that's that's how it works. So, yay, all you suggestible people. All right. (laughs) Um, Let's move on to a couple of other things. Uh, The... One of the things that we also saw last week was that uh, Amazon wants to deliver things to your car and this, they're partnering with GM as well. Um, so it, it like it, it's it's ripe for jokes um, but it's also I think it's a pretty good idea.
2: No, absolutely. Um, and you know what about six nine months ago, Amazon announced their Amazon key. Service which you know, everybody laughed at, you know, as having um, an electronic, you know, Wi-Fi connected lock on your door, so that you know when your packages are delivered, um, you know, instead of having the package left on your porch where you know anybody walking by can swipe it, uh, you know, the idea would be to uh, let somebody, you know, give them a one-time code. To get into your house and, you know, open the door, drop off the package inside and then close the door and lock it back up again. Uh, and it combined that combined that with a camera. Um, I don't know what you know, what kind of adoption rate they've gotten on that. But, you know, the this new thing is instead of delivering it into your house, delivering it to your car and putting it just putting it in the trunk of your car and. Um, and who, Which is actually yeah. not, not an entirely new idea that Audi's actually been piloting this in Europe for a couple of years with a company, a French company called Valtech, Uh, you know, where they, they use the telematics system to um, when the delivery person gets there, um, you know, they can remotely pop the trunk. They put the package in the back of the car, they close the trunk and then they go on and deliver the next package.
1: Yeah. And, and who among us hasn't done that with like people, you know, just, just like friends and acquaintances or whatever anyway, just like. I'll leave the car open. Just drop it in the car, and like we'll, we'll catch up later. Like that happens
2: all the time. Just, right? And at least this way, it's you know at least nominally locked. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you know, the thing, you know, they're doing this with with GM and with Volvo to start with. You know, both of whom offer telematic systems. I mean, you know, GM launched OnStar twenty years ago, and you know, one of the original features of OnStar was the ability to remotely lock and unlock your your car doors. You know, so if you lock your keys in the car. You know, you could go to a payphone because, of course, you know back then <laughs> almost nobody had cell phones. Um, you know, and call up the OnStar operator and give them your your number and and you know they could you know send a signal that would unlock your unlock your car doors. Um, and now they're actually using that for something useful. Um, you know, so that when you're not at your car, you know if you're at work or whatever um and you know you want a package delivered you can have it delivered right to your car i still kind of like the the I, the amazon lockers and i don't know if have you ever used an amazon locker no it's it's actually a pretty cool idea you know they have them they have them in most of the whole foods now and you know they've got them in other locations as well um you know where instead of having a package delivered to your home they'll take it to a locker and you you can select you know where you want it delivered and um, they will send you um, uh, an, an email to your phone with a, 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 a barcode on there. And you just go to the locker location, scan the barcode, and the door of, of one of the lockers opens up. And what, where that's at really useful for is when you want to return stuff. If you've got to return something to Amazon, instead of packing it up and taking it to FedEx or the post office or wherever, you can just take it to an Amazon locker. You, know, you get the the code. You you, know, you go on on the site and you, know, you say I want to return this item. They send you a barcode. You scan it. It'll open up the door. You stick it in there and close it. And then you know the delivery people will pick it up from the locker and take it. So you, it's a lot less hassle. I think you know when you're getting stuff, that would be more hassle, a little bit more hassle because you have to go to that location. Um, but you know, if you're if you don't like the idea of somebody having access to the trunk of your car, then you know that's that's an alternative. Um, but personally, I think you know, for deliveries, I'm I would be fine with having somebody just drop it in the trunk of my car. Yeah, I mean, just don't leave don't leave anything valuable. Right. In
1: there. It's like the, remember that the other option is
2: you give them access to your house. So right, and I'm like, no no way I'm doing that.
1: Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's like no, you can leave it on the porch. That's fine. <laughs> um, uh, it, it's it's not a you know it's, it's not a terrible idea i like that you you don't even need a new car for it either you you can do it with a 2015 and up gm car at the, with this this program so it, it sounds like it's it's like a software update to your existing you know my link or or whatever um and then it, then it will have that function so that's kind of cool
2: yeah. Um, it, it, yeah, I think um, yeah. It's just just using the OnStar system. So it's any of the the newer uh, OnStar vehicles that have four uh, G LTE radios.
1: Oh, okay. So, is – like, do you need to download an app to your phone, or do you?
2: No, no, you don't even have to do that.
1: Huh? So does it just like it's because if your car was built in 2015 and it has the four G LTE radio or whatever, but it doesn't like. Is there an OTA update for for OnStar that's going to add like an icon for this or something? I I guess that's where. No,
2: thinking. they they can they can all re- you, you don't even need like you know when you when you order something from Amazon and you pick, you know, the, the delivery so location, you basically
1: just select like deliver to my car? Yeah. Okay. I guess that's it,
2: where I mean, mean they you know that when they started adding the um, the, uh, the lockers, you know, they, they gave, you know, there's now an option, you know, for things like the locker and, and if you're in one of the areas where they're piloting the delivery to the car, I'm sure it'll, you know, it'll, that'll be just another option in there. So you have your, your address and, you know, usually you can have multiple addresses in there if you want it delivered to your work or to your home or wherever. Um, and it'll just be another option, you know, when you get to, you know, where do you want it delivered to? You know, you pick that, say, you know, you want, if you're, if you have an eligible car, I think you have to register, you probably have to register with OnStar initially to, to get that, you know, to give, to say, hey, I want to, I want to allow this, you know, give them permission to unlock, you know, the car for Amazon. But then once that's been done, uh, then, you know, it, you just select it, you know, whenever, when you're placing your orders on Amazon and, and they, you know, the on-star operator can, uh, they, they will just send a code to your car that unlocks the, uh, the trunk, pops the trunk, keeps the other doors locked. Um, and then the, and the, and the, the way it would work is the driver, the delivery person would actually, they would be using an app, you know? So when they get to the car, you know, um, you know they'll be at the location. You know, and they they'll use the app to request permission to access the car, and then it'll OnStar will send the signal to unlock it, and then you can, and then they can lock it and go.
1: That's all fancy alien technology. Yeah, Jesus. Um, or you could go to your local stores and buy things, paper money and coins. What
2: and be be around other human beings? Yeah. Who the hell would it's, want it's, that? That's the
1: funniest thing. Um, total side note like at at work in the in the slack um with the the facebook nonsense of the conference that's going on now um they they introduced their dating app and i was like somebody posted a link there and i was like oh facebook events going places and doing things you
2: know if 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 i was <laughs> yeah if if i was uh, in, in a life situation where i was looking to meet people Given the current circumstances, the last place I would be doing that is through a Facebook go, service. Go
1: where people are. I know people are like yeah. buried in their phones. Like, anyway, we're going to just sound like a couple of old dads now. So we should just move on.
2: <sighs> I mean, you know, oh, well, <laughs> never mind. I, I was going <laughs> to say something, but too much information.
1: Okay. Uh, let's talk about solid state LIDAR.
2: Which... <laughs> okay. Uh, so uh, we've got the first. Um, Announcement from a a mainstream with a mainstream automaker of their intent to use solid state LIDAR uh, in a production automated driving application. Um, BMW has done a deal with uh, an Israeli startup called InnoViz um, that uh, they've got investment from a bunch of companies, including uh, Aptiv, which is formerly Delphi. um, And they're going to be putting their solid state LIDAR in BMWs from 2021. Um, Yeah. Previously, um, uh, Henrik Fisker announced his intention to use Quantergy's solid-state LiDAR in his new EV from 2020, which, you know, we'll see if say, that ever still becomes a, like a reality.
1: He actually have a car. Uh,
2: he,
1: well, they had one at CES. Yeah. He's going to make a car, and then Bob Lutz is going to put LS v 8s in them, and everything's going to be fine.
2: <laughs> well, at this point, he'll probably put LTs okay, in LTs, there. LTs, yeah. Yeah, put put L T4s or L T5s in there. <laughs> Either way, it'll be glorious. <laughs> but yeah, well, the design of this one no, won't really lend itself to to shoving a, a big supercharged V8 in there, not like the Karma did. Yeah, that's that's true. But, um yeah. so all right, so, so so that's that
1: solid state lighter. So a solid state laser, so lasers I'm not all that up on them, but they have like a little, you know, they have the the cell right for exciting the electrons. Um, and, and a typical laser, like what's different With a solid state laser?
2: Does it not have that so, Stuff? Um, so like the, the Velodyne sensors, which are the ones you know, You're probably most used to seeing You know, the original big ones That looked like a, you know, sort of a trapezoidal Coffee can that you see and you saw on all the Early autonomous vehicle prototypes And then now they have the, the newer Puck type sensors uh, They're smaller, you know, looks like a hockey Puck. Um, those are all Mechanical scanning LIDARs. So you've got one or more lasers inside this thing. And, you know, it scans around, the whole thing rotates, you've got lots of moving parts and, you know, they're susceptible to damage from, you know, vibration and things like that. Um, you know, very sensitive componentry in there. Um, you know, they, they work really well. They're, you know, they're, they're very um, you know, sensitive, they, you know, very high resolution, but they're also very expensive and, and, Durability is questionable, you know, over the long haul in a vehicle. So, what everybody's work, working towards is these solid-state sensors, where you don't have any major moving parts. Um, that's the key difference, you know. So, you can drive down the cost, and it should be more durable in an automotive environment. And there's a bunch of different approaches to this. Quantergy uses a, a phased array system that uses a bunch of lenses to that splits the laser beam and you know sends out a you know splits it into a whole bunch of beams that uh, so like a, goes like out a prism. And, yeah, um, and then they bounce back, and you, know, you get photodetectors in there that that read the reflected um, pulse light pulses. The approach taken by Inoviz is a little bit different. The the phased array and the flash LIDAR that uh, companies like um, um, Continental have, the problem with splitting the laser beam is you, you lose power. You know, if you take one, one light beam and split it into multiple beams or put it through a diffuser like flashlight LIDAR does, um, you have a lot less range. And so the, the quantity sensors are good to about 20 or 30 meters uh, right now, uh, they're working on improving that, but it's only, you know, so it's about, you know, 60, 70 feet. Yeah. And um, you can't just the, crank up
1: power, right? Like, you right. Know, this,
2: well, you, well point you, the, can, you, you, can, but the problem is, um, you know, the, there's most of the LIDAR sensors out there now are at 905 nanometers. That's the, the wavelength of the laser, yeah. um, and so 905 nanometers, you know, if you point a 905 nanometer laser in somebody's eye, it can focus on it can focus that wavelength. Your, your the lens of the eye can focus that and, you know, it can cause damage to your retina. So you have to limit the power output of those lasers so you don't cause eye damage. Yeah. So um, there are some LIDAR sensors from companies like Luminar that are using 1550 nanometer. Um, which is eye safe. It's what they call eye safe, so so it won't damage your eye, but um, it's. More expensive, um, you know, so you can, because it's eye safe, you can use a more powerful laser and have longer range. But the the type of detector that you have to use to detect the reflected pulses uh, is much more expensive. So it, it increases the cost. Uh, what Inoviz is doing is theirs is a, using a MEMS sensor, a micro electromechanical system uh, for the mirror.
1: Yeah, so that, so, to, to me, totally like not... I'm not reading like how it actually works. It sounds like they've invented like a, a um uh like how you steer the electron beam in a TV. Like it, it, where they're they're actually pulling the laser beam or is that completely off
2: base? Um no, well the, the the electron beam in a TV uh you're actually using uh you're steering the laser you're steering the beam, the electron beam um with magnets right. basically right. this is not you know it's not using magnets um because you know a laser beam you know being in the in the in the
1: it's it's light in the it's, infrared spectrum yeah it's, yeah it's it's
2: not gonna it's not gonna be susceptible to 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 magnetic forces um in the same way um so what they're you know the, the mems mirror you know is basically like a, a really tiny like a microscopically tiny mirror okay. that that scans Um, so it's the calling it solid state is not entirely accurate, but it's not, there's a moving part. It's moving. There's a moving part, but it's this tiny little moving part and it's much more durable than the, what you find in like the, most of the lidars that are out there today so um but because it's not splitting the beam um you with the same power of laser you can get much more range so you can get about 200 to 250 meters of range with this laser with this lidar sensor so it's better at higher it works well at higher speeds
1: huh that's cool i mean almost and now it sounds like it's just like sort of a a a dlp projector working backwards it, and
2: it's actually closer to a DLP. Yeah. It, that, that's actually, that's actually, a, it's very much like a DLP, uh, but even smaller, uh, than a DLP.
1: Huh? I know this is, this is useless to anybody. <laughs> I'm just trying to make sense it's, of it. It's
2: actually pretty cool. You know, the MEMS MEMS machines are, are actually really cool devices. Um, you know, and if, if you want to look it up, it's, it's pretty interesting how they work. Um, And we're going to see a lot of I think we're going to see a lot of interesting applications of MEMS technology in the coming years. But this is this is going to be one of the first. So
1: this I'm assuming that this drops the price uh, significantly on LiDAR sensors or or it will
2: if it hasn't. yet. Yeah, they've uh, they've said, you know, when they're in volume production, you know, they're um, they're going to they're. Their production intent design, they, the InnoViz 1 sensor, right now they're making one a sensor called InnoViz Pro that is designed for development applications, uh, and that's the ones they're, they're selling to companies today for doing uh, R&D work on automated driving. Um, the production one that they're going to sell to BMW is called InnoViz 1, and uh, sometime in 2019, they plan to be producing about 5000 a month. Um, and those those sensors um, in volume should be below a thousand dollars, and they're looking to get down to the low hundreds of dollars per sensor. And just for reference, the current the latest Velodyne puck sensor, the VLP sixteen sensor, uh, costs four thousand dollars.
1: Well, that's going to change the uh, the landscape for a lot of things.
2: Uh, oh, absolutely!
1: <laughs> and Does that make does that then make sir, autonomous driving that much more practical? Like, does does it have performance benefits, or is it strictly just trying to, you know, miniaturize and, and sort of uh, cost it's, it's
2: miniaturizing, and, I mean, you know, it, it'll help in terms of reducing the cost. It should be more durable, and it should be better able to withstand the, the vibration that, you know, when you hit a pothole and things like that. Uh, you don't really want sensitive moving equipment um running around you know or you know spinning around at many thousands of times per second um you know as a current lidar sensor does um but you know you still have the whole issue of you know whether you know autonomous driving is actually inherently safer than human drivers um which is the the next thing uh we had here um I've been doing some thinking lately you, know, you see some of these stats that come out um, you know from companies like Waymo and Tesla yeah, and one of the big ones is probably the single biggest uh, statistic you know that is public about automated driving uh, programs is the the disengagement reports that are published by the state of California you know for companies that want to test on public roads in California they have to pay 150 bucks for a permit. Um, unless you're uber, and uh, unless you're uber which well they eventually did pay the the, oh, that's, the, that's, the money and got their permit true. too but um yeah you know, and then part of that agreement is that you have to submit an annual report to the to the california dmv you know showing how many you know uh, the record of every time the 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 systems disengaged and a human driver human safety driver had to take over and for the last couple of years you know waymo uh, has been making a big deal about their disengagement you know the progress they've been making on dis- frequency of disengagements or reduced frequency of disengagements to be more specific and you know on their 2017 report you know they, they got up to an average of 5600 miles between disengagements so that means every 5600 miles of driving a human safety driver had to take control of the vehicle for for whatever reason and this that's not bad. This,
1: that's like, that's, that's, well, it's it, a couple on the surface. That's right? yeah. it's not
2: bad, but um, think about that. You know, that meant that, you know, the part, part of the problem with this metric is, um, you know, it's fundamentally flawed because it's not really defined anywhere as you know, what counts as a disengagement right, right. Know, and when, when should a driver t- you know, take, when should a human safety driver take over? That's not defined by the regulation. It's very open state. Everybody's kind of decided Yeah, everybody's got their own procedures and processes. So if you happen to be, you know, testing in a place where there's no other traffic around and the vehicle starts doing something that may be a little questionable, um, you know, the driver may use their judgment and say, Well, I'm just gonna let this go and see where it goes, see if it corrects itself. And so that wouldn't counter the disengagement in a different environment that, you know, where there's more traffic around, they may be more, they may take a more conservative approach and say, "Eh, okay, I'm going to take over here. And that's a problem. Um, You know, but the thing is, you know, Waymo is by far and away the best in terms of their, their um, stats for disengagements. But, you know, even that 5,600 miles between disengagements, Is actually not that good when you start putting it in context of human drivers, because um, you know I pulled up some stats. You know, I did an article for Forbes on this. If in 2015 um, there were 6.3 million crashes in the United States, but we drove over 3.1 trillion miles. Right. That that's an average of just shy of half a million miles between each crash and that's total crashes, not fender benders and you know fatal crashes and everything in between. Uh, so that's like half a million miles between accidents, which is actually pretty phenomenally good. Yeah.
1: I was going to say like, yes, uh, every traffic death is tragic. I don't want to minimize that, but, I think that's what's the spec. It's like one person per every hundred million miles
2: travel. Yeah, it's about one, a little more than one point one, about one point one five fatalities for every hundred million miles of driving.
1: So, yes, autonomous cars are interesting and new. They have a long ass way to go just to get to the safety of the average driver.
2: Yeah, eventually they'll probably be safer than human drivers. Maybe. But w- like but when? Today, we don't actually have any evidence of that. And in fact, what little evidence we do have actually indicates that they're far worse than human drivers. Yeah. Uh, and to rush this technology into the marketplace, you know, would be potentially tragic.
1: Yeah. It's going to be, look, I mean, there's. I, I'm just, I, I'm not going to rant again about how we could just train drivers better and do this stuff at the same time, but that's. That's my idea.
2: <laughs> it's like. Oh, no, you're right, though. I mean, you know, if, if if we did nothing else but just get, you know, 100 percent of people in vehicles wearing seatbelts, you know, 46 yeah. percent of the fatalities of, you know, occupant fatalities in, in crashes were oh, unbelted. Wait,
1: so almost so. How many, how many total, it's like 50,000 a year, right, roughly?
2: Uh, no, the total last year was about a little over 37,000. I think the last year you that know, we've got full data for in the FARS database, which is the uh, DOT's uh, fatal accident reporting system, uh, is about 24,000. Uh, There's about 30, 35,000 total fatalities. And that includes pedestrians, cyclists, uh, vehicle occupants. And so a vehicle occupants, you know, 46% of the people that died that were vehicle occupants were unbelted. So that's, you know, probably, you know, 12, you know, so that's like 11, 12,000 people okay. right there.
1: So, v- <laughs> That's astounding that there's like twelve thousand people who won't wear their seatbelt.
2: Oh, there's way more than that. No, well, I mean that's just like, the number of them that died,
1: them. right? Uh, uh, I mean that it seems like such a easy-ish thing to do when you get in the car, put the damn seatbelt on. Um, yeah, and and so what does that look like too? Like, okay. Autonomous cars. Eventually, they're going to be different. Um, they're going to they're, everybody's trying to do their lounge seating kind of thing because you don't need to drive it. So you don't need a dashboard and you don't need a steering wheel. You want to sit around and we're going to make it attractive for people. So we're going to show pictures of them with their friends in the car. Uh, eventually, it's going to be like a, a rolling little clubhouse. <laughs> Or something. So, so how does that change? Like, how do you, how do you make people buckle up in the autonomous world? Because they're going to say, well, the, the technology is going to be safer. And it, it may or may not be. Um, but there's going to be that inherent sort of trust in the machines. Uh, So right now, are we at a high point for seatbelt use? And are we going to see that fall off? How do you, how do you? Do you still that's
2: keep- that's one of the big questions you know some of the conferences i i go to you know uh one of the, the big topics that it- uh, in the last year or so, has been the user experience in these vehicles. You know what kind of seating are we going to have in these vehicles? What sort of entertainment systems? Um, you know, and you know what, how are we going to do restraint systems? You know, if you've got seats that can swivel around, how are we going to handle things like seat belts and airbags? Um, you know, and and handle um, you know the forces when there is a crash. You know, if if you've got um, a seat that can be at any arbitrary angle. You know, uh, I mean, today, you know, we always know what direction the seat is facing. We know where the where the passengers are going to be, where the vehicle occupants are going to be. And, you know, when we're doing the uh, when the engineers are designing the crash structures, they can target the forces around that, you know, with that knowledge of where they expect the occupants to be. But if the seat can be rotated to any arbitrary angle. Now things change pretty dramatically. And so, you know, until you have an environment where there's only autonomous vehicles that we know will never crash. You know, you still have to deal with all of you know, the all these issues of occupant protection, occupant safety, um, especially if they're coexisting with with human driven vehicles, which they almost certainly will be for decades to come. Um, so it's we don't know. We don't know the answers yet. They're, they're still trying to figure that out. Um, but, you know, the, the reality is today, you know, the you know, for the average driver that goes about 15000 miles a year they're going to have about one crash every 32 years. Huh? That's pretty good. Um, Yeah. So, you know, your, your odds of, and that's not even a fatal crash. That's just any crash, you know? um, So your odds of dying in a car are, you know, Infinitesimally small. The only reason that the total number of people that die is as high as it is is because we travel as much as we do. We have so many people going around in cars and buses and and other vehicles and and uh, you know walking on the streets that and going so many trillions of miles every year. You know and and the the number the amount of vehicle miles traveled in this country has exploded over the last 30, forty years. You know uh, the in the article I I wrote. I wrote You know, I went back and looked at the the stats and, you know, as recently as 1975, we had 44,525 people die, you know, in traffic accidents in the United States. And that's compared to 37,500 roughly in 2017. But in 1975, we only drove 1.3 trillion miles. Right. Last year we drove over 3.2 trillion miles, so we've gone almost three times as far and still have f- far fewer accidents. Um, so you know we we're actually you know <laughs> driving is actually remarkably safe. You know the the progress we've made in the last forty years. You know even though we've had an uptick in the last couple of years, we're still you know pretty at uh, pretty much near the the you know historical low, um, and you know hopefully we'll we'll get better, but. Um, Right now, we don't, you know, the the little evidence we have for the autonomous vehicles that are testing on public roads, they're actually, they fall far short of what humans can do. Humans are actually still much, much better drivers than the software running these autonomous vehicles that are being tested.
1: Yeah, it's still, um, the human being is still the least expensive general purpose computer that. Weighs about 150 pounds and can be mass produced by unskilled labor.
2: <laughs> and and the human brain only takes about four watts of power as opposed to 400 watts for an, an NVIDIA drive PX Pegasus. God,
1: I, I, I love those quotes. <laughs> <laughs> They're totally not mine. I think I got that 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 mass produced one from from Alex Rory. I think it was a NASA thing. Um, yeah. But it, it, like it's it's true. Like people are pretty good at driving
2: for now even for, though, for all of our flaws were remarkably underrated
1: yeah even even elon said so
2: yeah <laughs> among the other shit Spe- he says speaking speaking of which on their on their first quarter conference call today i guess he berated the uh the analysts on the, the financial analysts on the call you know complaining about the media you know Uh, telling negative stories about autonomous technology and particularly autopilot, you know, saying people aren't going to trust the technology. Now they're not going to use it. Well, you know, the the reality is you shouldn't, it's not, it's not, (laughs) Yeah, you shouldn't be using it. It's not any better. And in in many cases it's worse than a human driver, Um, you know, and the, one of the stats he's been throwing around for the past year was, you know, from the, the NHTSA report of the 2016 accident that killed Josh Brown, Um, You know, it was stated that, you know, the after installing autopilot um, on on these vehicles that the Tesla has been saying, you know, the number of crashes went down by 40 percent. And today, uh, NHTSA actually issued a statement saying in our um, examination of autopilot in that crash, we did not actually look at the. Efficacy of autopilot itself They said they did not Assess the system's effectiveness In that report The only thing they actually did Was look at the number of airbag deployments Before and after The number of airbag deployments Went down by 40% And so they just wanted to see If there was an increase You know, And since there was no increase In airbag deployments in those cars They did not go any further In assessing the effectiveness Of the technology And in fact they only the the only real data there is out there about any of this stuff uh, is actually from uh, some IHS studies, the In- uh, Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. They looked at uh, automatic emergency braking systems, and those are what actually reduced the incidence of crashes by forty percent. And you don't need autopilot to do that. You know they actually have. Tesla rolled out automatic emergency braking you know, at the same time they rolled out autopilot. But there's a you know a lot of very basic cars that also have AEB that uh, have, you know, are seeing similar results in terms of reducing uh, front end crashes. Those. So,
1: yeah. I mean, those are the kind of crashes I see all the time. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, especially now where, where people are more distracted by their devices, uh, they are rear ending each other <laughs> more often, you know, like. Uh, And and also just in certain situations where people are not always fully attentive. So you come over a rise and there's slow traffic and, you know, you don't you haven't you have there's not enough, not enough practicing and thinking about, you know, following distance and reaction time going on. Uh, So you wind up with those crashes that they're not really serious. They're just, you know, they're they're common and. If anybody's they're, they're, co-
2: they're common and they're and they're costly. I mean, yeah. they're you know it, it creates it creates traffic congestion. You often have you, you you often have you know minor injuries, but you know there's also a significant you know cost economic cost uh, you know in terms of you know cleanup the repair costs for the vehicles. But of course that also means you know you're employing people working in body shops, so there is that trade off. Um, you know it's um, you know there, there's a lot we could do to reduce crashes without having to go to full automation. Yeah. Well, and if anybody's know, right gonna now, figure right now out. there's no evidence that full automation is, is actually going to make anything better and may in fact make it worse. I
1: think it'll make it worse. I mean, is a, the insurance companies are going to figure out what's going on because they're the ones that have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, that's kind of what got us unsafe at any speed was insurance companies going, why, what is, what is going on here? And, and looking at um, army data i think about uh injuries way way back injuries and deaths <laughs> way back where they they realized they were losing more guys you know in the states on bases than they or you know around bases than they were overseas um so like that's i i think going to be a, a pretty good catalyst to, to sorting some of these issues out but if you are trusting that autonomous tech you're by the that like the very nature of that activity you are not paying as much attention your reaction time is going to be so slow because you're not even going to know what's going on like now the reaction time is if you're paying attention you've still got to register what's going on and move your foot from from you know gas to brake or just whatever you know a good reaction time is is you know, in the the single digit seconds, right? Like four mm-hmm. seconds, and at, a, at a highway speed, is you want to leave yourself a cushion because it's going to take you two and a half to figure out what the hell's going on in front of you, and then make a, a reaction to and, it.
2: And if you, you know, if you're using something like autopilot or, or you know, any of these other systems, and you've you're more disengaged, it's going to take you even longer to to assess the situation and and get back involved in what's going on.
1: Yeah. So good luck with that. <laughs> yeah.
2: I'm not, no. uh, I, st- I, still, I still say, you know, regardless of, of Elon Musk's complaints, I still say that Tesla has been reckless in their deployment of autopilot. And they should not be putting beta software out there in customer hands.
1: Uh, Tesla. Uh, Tesla's been doing a lot of stuff. They had their call yeah. today, which was entertaining. Um, I know that we had a question on Twitter about that. Um, so we'll, we'll get to that shortly yeah um but the last thing on our topic list was possibly the most exciting there is a diesel f-150 and you got to drive it
2: yeah i got to drive it finally um you know it's like (laughs) 10 years ago ford promised a diesel f-150 and you know it was going to be a 4.4 liter v8 diesel and you know we all know what happened in 2008 and so that that uh, that never made it to production. Although that engine did go into production, and it was used, it's was used in uh, Land Rover and, and uh, Land Rover models and Range Rovers overseas. It never came to the North American market. Um, but uh, now, uh, a relative of that engine, um, you know, another engine that's also been used by Jaguar Land Rover uh, is in the F-150. Uh, it's a three-liter V6, 250 horsepower, 440 foot-pounds of torque. <laughs> Um, you can buy it in, F one fifties, uh, now, um, and, uh, we get to try it out. And, you know, I, I spent some time talking with the, the marketing guys from Ford, you know, uh, They've, they've made such a big deal, you know, over the last seven or eight years, you know, about EcoBoost and, you know, how fuel efficient it is and gets you most of the benefit of diesel at lower price. And uh, and in fact, you know, the the 3.5 liter EcoBoost in the F-150 actually has the highest tow rating of any F-150 model.
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's uh, got 480 pound
2: feet of torque. So right. Yeah. You know, and so, I mean, you can, uh, the, the top configuration, you know, with the, uh, you know, a super, a four wheel drive crew cab, uh, with the three, five EcoBoost, you can get up to 13,200 pounds of towing capability and over 3000 pounds of payload capability. Um, <laughs> That's and, ridiculous. and the, the diesel is actually only 11,400 pounds of towing and uh, about 2000 pounds of payload capability. Um, and so I asked, you know, it's like why why at this point would customers pay the premium for uh for a diesel in the F150. And what they what they explained to me was that um uh, the you know, they they found you know from their studies that about 70% of F150 owners actually do tow with their trucks. But the vast majority of them only tow a handful of times a year at most. You know, so it might be like towing your boat to the lake in the spring, putting it in the water and then pulling it out in the fall, maybe towing a trailer a couple times a year for a road trip, something like that. But, you know, they 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 tow, but they don't do it very often. And, you know, one of the things that's been found with the EcoBoost engines, you know, they, they get decent fuel economy when you're just driving them around. But when you get into them, you know, if you start doing a lot of towing or heavy payload, um, the fuel economy drops off really fast under load and one of the the reasons they brought out the diesel one of the the great things about diesel is their diesel engines are much less sensitive to the loading conditions Um, and so the you know if you're towing with a diesel engine the fuel economy doesn't drop off nearly as much and so for customers that tow all the time like for example a landscaper that's towing a trailer with a bunch of lawnmowers and other equipment on there or you know some other sort of you know contractor or people that are towing a horse trailer you know to competitions every weekend um, for those customers the diesel actually makes a lot more sense, and you know, based on that logic, it does. And you know, Ford expects probably about five percent of F one hundred and fifty customers are going to opt for this diesel engine, which um, in the the two wheel drive uh, XLT, I think, is rated at thirty miles per gallon highway and twenty two city. Um, in the the more common ones that they expect to sell in the highest volumes, the um, the Four wheel drive crew cabs is 25 highway, 20 city, 22 combined, which is pretty impressive for a truck that big.
1: Yeah. Uh, And it'll probably, and like you're saying, it's not going to drop off as much when it's, when it's working.
2: Right. And that's that's the key is the the drop off when it's when you're when you're really using it the way you're going to use a truck. If you're doing if you're doing that stuff all the time, then it makes sense to spend, you know, anywhere from twenty four hundred to four thousand dollars extra to get the diesel engine.
1: So where does that put the. the F I mean, I'm sure that the platinum gets ridiculous. It's like a sixty thousand dollar F one fifty, if not more um, with this engine. But price wise, it's it's costs a premium for the diesel
2: yeah so um on the um for consumers you can get the diesel on the lariat trim and up so lariat platinum limited um those are all available with the diesel engine And depending on which trim level you get it on um you know it, it can be as low as a $2,400 premium because it's already got some of the other things that are bundled with it. Uh, like on the Lariat, it's, I think it's $4,000. Um, on the Platinum, it's 2400 And so it, it's there's, that's kind of the range. Um, and then um, commercial customers, fleet customers can also order the diesel on an XL or an XLT um you know cuz the work trucks you know the the more basic trucks and on there it's a $4000 option but again because of the way they're they're using it you know they and you know the the high mileage that they tend to put on those trucks the um the, in, the improvement in fuel economy more than offsets the um the cost premium uh for those customers
1: well and you know i was thinking about the price like your example of a landscaper that might be kind of an expensive truck for a regular landscaper, but on the other hand, a lot of other, uh, trades and and stuff like they drive Raptors a lot. There's a lot of plumbers for Raptors, for example. So it's not uh, an expensive truck. Isn't necessarily uh, a barrier for for someone who's, well. and and the other, the other thing
2: you find is, yeah, it's a write-off, but also, you know, a lot of times, you know, these, uh, uh, contractors and landscapers and stuff, you know, they'll be using these trucks for eight, 10 years or more, you know, so they, I mean, they will put, you know, several hundred thousand miles, you know, or more on these trucks over their, their useful life. So, you know, when you start adding that up, it, it starts to make a lot of economic sense.
1: Yeah. I, I uh, I agree with that. I just, it's just going to be a breathtakingly expensive F-150. <laughs>
2: Well, I mean, you know, when the average transaction price on an F-Series is already like $54,000. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. On F-150? like. Uh, well, that's on F-Series as a whole, so that includes Super Duty. Oh, okay. On, on F-150 alone, I think it's uh, somewhere around $44,000. That's
1: still, holy crap.
2: Yeah. Oh. Well, I mean, you know, a four, F-450 Platinum, uh, you know, runs about $100,000 mm-hmm. now. That, yeah, that's a... It's it's insane. It's it's incredible how much people spend on these trucks. I
1: just remember the the first F150 my father bought was 11,500. Yeah. It was an F150 XL.
2: Well, this is this is why the Ranger's coming back. You know, when they when they dropped the Ranger, you know, they said, well, you know, the price, the cost of building a Ranger is, you know, virtually the same as building an F150 and it doesn't really get much better fuel economy. Um, you know, so you know, why should customers buy the Ranger when they can get an F one hundred and fifty that has more capability? Well, now that the price of the F one hundred and fifty has gone up so much, and you know, the same thing applies to the Rams and the GM trucks and the Tundras and the Titans. they I mean, they've all gone up, uh, and that's why manufacturers love to sell them, you know, because it helps to offset the the cost of subsidizing, you know, the um, more fuel-efficient small vehicles and EVs and stuff, um, but you know now they've they've got some room in their lineup, you know, in terms of pricing, to be able to sell the Ranger at a lower price, you know, more for, more affordable price, and still make money on it.
1: Yeah, well, good for them.
2: Good for somebody.
1: Yeah, it's it's am a, uh, uh, still just I think a Ridgeline is the perfect truck for most of us.
2: Oh yeah, for for most average consumers, um that, that want to pick up truck, Ridgeline is is perfectly adequate. Um, got you know, big lots of room in the cab for five people, um, plenty of room and you know and payload in the uh, in the bed. You've got that tr- lockable trunk in the back of the bed, um, and still have some decent towing capability, you know, for pulling a couple of jet skis yeah. or you know small boat things like that.
1: I I like that truck a lot. Um, yeah, I wish there were more of them, you know. But we'll see. Maybe that will happen. Um, all right. Do we want to do some some questions or anything? I know we had the the question about uh, sure. Um, actually the we had a question about an RX8, which I thought was entertaining. Let
2: me. Uh, uh let's see where did that go?
1: Twitter's here. Um. But yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. So from uh, Surtur, uh, is Ford the canary in the coal mine with respect to cars? Will I be forced to at some point to drive an SUV, CUV, I currently have a 2010 RX-8 and it feels like the last good car I'll ever own? Well, actually, uh, Fiat Chrysler was the canary in the coal mine uh, when they did this two years ago. Um, Ford is, is following in their path. And uh, but yeah, I think You know, this this is going to be the trend we're going to see from other OEMs over the next couple of years. Um, And uh, you may well be forced to drive something that is at least, you know, vaguely branded as a utility. But the reality is that it's more just a slightly tall car.
1: Did we did we know at the time that Fiat Chrysler was the canary in the coal mine? And we just think that, like, (laughs) oh they're on death's door.
2: Um, I thought they were, you know, because, you know, the the general trend towards SUVs was already happening at that point. And, uh, you know, it was around that. It was it was about that. Not that far off that time that I had a conversation with Jim Farley, who is what currently um, president of Ford. Something like I that. Remember. At, at the time, he was head of Ford of Europe. He, he was over and he'd been over in, in Europe for about nine months as head of Ford of Europe. And, um, you know, the comment that he made to me at that time was that he was amazed at, you know, how much even the European market was shifting over to crossovers. But it wasn't it wasn't the kind of. Uh, Crossover utilities that were kind of modeled after traditional SUVs, you know, that were more truck like, but it was more new kinds of crossovers, you know, that were, you know, a little bit taller, you know, basically cars like the the Toyota CHR yep. today, you know, the Citroen Picasso and Cactus, uh, you know, and a variety of other of these more car like sort of pseudo yeah, utilities. Yeah, and you know
1: what? Like, if you don't like the cactus, you're dead inside. That thing's just, <laughs> it's just neat. And the new yeah. cactus isn't as neat as the old cactus, but it's yeah. And the CHR is the same thing. Like hate it all you want, but it's at least like an expressive little ex- experiment and, you know, ve- vehicleness. I don't know. It, uh, it's hard to dislike those cars. So.
2: But, um, you know, we will still have some cars. I mean, they're not all going away. Yeah, you know. So you know, um, you know, Ford's keeping the Mustang. It's the Mustang's not going anywhere, um, and you know because they have you know one of their five flexible platform architectures is a rear wheel drive unibody. Um, you can bet that there's going to be Mustang DNA going into the new Explorer and Aviator and and vice versa. Um, you know, so there, you know, there's, there's going to be a Mustang around for a while to come. Um, you know, and there's, there's going to be other cars, you know, we, we will, we will still see some cars. We probably won't see another Focus RS in North America for a while, if ever. Uh, but you know, we will see, um, you know, there's, there's still cars like the, the the Civic Type R and, um, there, there will, there will be other stuff. So, you know, they're not, they're not all going to disappear.
1: For now, yeah. I think that that RX Eight is probably the last car like that that you're gonna you're gonna own for
2: certainly the last car like like an RX Eight
1: yeah um, and you know when you get tired of those apex seals leaking all the oil um, <laughs> LS swaps are really popular they're in that car it 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 works really well I I liked the RX Eight yeah that's if you're gonna be this stuck a with the car. car forever that's not a not a bad one
2: yeah or you can buy an old miata,
1: yeah you
2: know, or I, even a new miata
1: i and again the l s swap so I 8s i V8's. <laughs> i v eights I don't the miata's fine as it is too i like i like the four cylinder um all right, uh did we want to talk about more about Elon Musk's comments, or do we want to leave that till like next week? I know we got a question about that too right? no
2: i mean i I talked about it before, and i don't all i right. don't think I don't really feel like saying anything else I mean, I already called him reckless so. Right. That's, that's sufficient.
1: Um, and then, uh, any insight into? I'm, I'm
2: sure by next time, you know, he will have said something else stupid. Yeah,
1: I know. It's a, we'll, we it, give us on. a week. We'll we'll chew on it a little bit more. Uh, I mean, it just happened today, so the transcript is out, and we'll have time to review. And yeah.
2: And I'll 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 probably have some additional comments on it. I'll be on uh, Tech News Weekly tomorrow. You know, depending on when this show gets out, it may or may be before or after Tech News Weekly. But I'll be on there with um, Megan Maroney and Jason uh, Howell on uh, Twit to talk about this, uh, talk about autonomous vehicle safety some more. And uh, so I'll, I'll probably have something else to say about Tesla then.
1: Okay, so tune in for that. Um... Yeah. Let's see, uh, and any insight into performance of Ford's, uh, subscription service in California? Uh, That feels like something we need to look into a little bit. I don't know. Yeah,
2: they, they haven't really said how it's doing so far. You know, they, they have expanded the program. So presumably that's a good sign. Um, you know, some of the other early subscription services like Cadillac book, um, you know, haven't had huge adoption, um, But that's at least partly because they're expensive. I mean, one of the things about these subscription services is they give you some flexibility in the cars, the vehicles that you drive. But there's a pretty big price to pay for that. Um, So you know, depending on the you know, and there's different setups. Like you know, Care by Volvo is more of you know, sort of a a bundled lease program you know and you know depending on where you live it might it might be a good deal for you um, you know because they bundle in service and insurance as, as part of it um, but uh, you know some of the other programs if you want the flexibility you're gonna pay a significant cost premium to get it uh, so we'll we'll see how these work out but uh, for you know none of them none of the automakers have really talked and much specifics about uh about how much adoption they're getting
1: yeah well and that, that might be stuff that they're kind of keeping on the down low anyway you
2: know, well be- you know, and they're still they're still tweaking the programs trying to understand how consumers are going to want to use them and you know looking at the price elasticity to figure out how much how much are people going to be willing to pay for this flexibility Um, So it's it's all it's all really new still. So we're we'll see different variations of these programs coming to market, um, you know, different price points and things like that. Um, And then we'll start to get a better idea. I think the the ones that may actually turn out to be more interesting are the ones that aren't necessarily run by a car company, but, um, you know, companies like Clutch and there's there's a couple others that I've talked to um, that work with dealer groups to pull together. Um, groupings of vehicles, you know, that span multiple brands and give you a larger selection of, of vehicles to choose from. You know, different vehicle types across different brands, and it can do it at you know more more price points. You know, so um, you know, Clutch I think has plans that run from seven hundred and fifty dollars a month up to fifteen hundred a month or more, um, and and those those may turn out to be more appealing to customers.
1: Yeah. I don't have anything else to say about that. I think we should go because it's been a while. Um, So, yeah, good. Thanks for listening. And we will catch everybody next time.
2: All right. See ya.
0: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.